0: Good morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 16, verse 11. Acts chapter 16, verse 11, where we see that Paul and his team are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Macedonia. And before we get started, I'm just going to make sure all of our doors locked or closed. Thank you. Kids are... Kids are uh, practicing, getting ready for their play, which will be taking place in a few weeks. That's what we want to make sure we don't have a competing choir. But this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. I want to start with a question, and the question is this. What kind of people will God use? What kind of people will God use? God uses all sorts of people, and I think one of the things we get into in our heads is thinking that, well, God uses this type of person, or God uses that type of person, or you have to be of a certain background or education level or experience in order for God to use you. We have all of these prerequisites in our mind. And sometimes we look at our own lives and we say, well, I can't be used by God because I don't meet those standards. I don't, I don't meet the expectations that I have for someone who's going to be used by the Lord. But I'm here to assure you, and I think we'll see this morning, that God can use anyone. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy, by which we can stand in your presence. Though we choose to bow, though we choose to kneel, though we choose to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth, knowing that we have no good place in your presence in our own strength or righteousness, but knowing that we can come boldly before your throne of grace for help in our time of need because of your mercy, because of your love. And so we come to you in obedience, but not in our own righteousness, asking for you to work mightily in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, here's what we're going to do. A little bit uh, of things I want to share, but it's in the context of a narrative that we're going to read, and it's pretty self-explanatory. So what I'm going to do is read the first section we're going to look at here. We pick it up in verse 11, verses 11 through 12. We read concerning Paul and Silas, Paul and his team actually, because he has Timothy with him now and also Luke. We see here that Paul and his team, they sail from Troas to Macedonia, and then they go on to a place called Philippi. And so we read, From Troas, in verse 11, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So that paragraph just gives us an idea of how they get from Asia Minor or modern Turkey to Macedonia, or what we might refer to as northern Greece. Paul and his team were called by the Holy Spirit to leave Asia, to travel to a different place, actually a different continent, if you will. Actually, Europe, the place that many of them had never been, at least as far as we can tell, Paul had never been. Perhaps he had. But now we see that this province that they were in, this province of Asia... Uh, was was where they had done so much ministry for such a long time. They're on their second missionary journey, or at least Paul is, and here they find themselves ministering to people they're comfortable with, majority Greek area. And now they're going into a Roman area. Yes, both Greeks and Romans were Gentiles, but different cultures. Macedonia was a Roman province. It was also the birthplace of Alexander the Great. So it is both a Roman province and a very Greek cultural area. They sailed, That is the team from Troas to Samothrace and then on to Neapolis. Uh, Troas, which we mentioned last week, was a port city on the coast of Mysia in the north, and uh, now they, of, of Turkey, what's today Turkey. And then there's this Tham- Samothrace, which is mentioned, uh, which is a. Uh, an island. And so the, the ships would make their way from island to island to coast to coast. And so they made their way out. This island was about 38 miles from the coast of Thrace. So they're almost there. And then they find their way in Neapolis, which is another maritime city. But now they're in Europe or Macedonia. Then they traveled from Neapolis on foot to Philippi, and they stayed there for several days. And this is where all of the events we're going to study this morning take place. So we've now transitioned into this place, uh, which we're going to learn a lot about, Macedonia. And as they are there, we need to know that Philippi was about nine miles from the sea, so they did need to travel on foot. And it's it's on the main road from Rome to Asia, so it's on a major thoroughfare, an area where people would trade and travel. So this is a very populated city, a very popular city. It was named in honor of Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. Philip had named this city after himself, after he fortified it, about three or 400 years before Christ. Now, Philippi, in all of Macedonia, was conquered by the Romans in 168 B.C. So again, Greek culturally, Roman politically. That's important, but it's also important to know that this was a Roman colony. One little bit of trivia for you Shakespeare fans. Brutus, which you, of course, remember from Julius Caesar, was defeated by Mark Anthony at Philippi in 42 B.C., And of course, Shakespeare wrote the play, but history tells us that Brutus and Cassius revolted against Julius Caesar, had him killed, and this is where they met their doom. This is where they were defeated. So this is a very well-known city, a Roman colony, the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Roman soldiers were stationed there in order to control this conquered district. It was a miniature Rome. It was under the municipal law of Rome, which was different than Roman uh, settlements or places that they had conquered like Judea. This is a miniature Rome, and it was governed by military officers who were appointed directly from Rome, and it's the capital of the province of Macedonia. This is a very different place from where they had been ministering. So the Holy Spirit is leading them, and you can expect if it's a different place, it's going to be a very different approach to ministry. Amen? You can't take the same approach that you take in one area of the country or the world as you would take in another. I think about a city ministry, an urban ministry, versus a suburban ministry or a rural ministry. I've observed over the last several decades that ministries that are in the more rural areas of even our state, tend to be more community centers. Because there's less community, the church takes over that role and becomes more of the community center within that area. In urban centers, oftentimes churches become very socially focused. That is, they're meeting the needs of people who are generally poor or are in need. And in so- sometimes in, in certain areas, like in the suburbs, you, you'll have a church that you know, meets the needs of more affluent people. And affluent people have needs. And what I've really enjoyed about being a pastor in this church is that we are what you might call a commuter church. And by that, I mean there are some of you here today that have traveled a half hour to 40 minutes to be with us, but because we're close to the highway, because we have a parking lot, and because we're able to accommodate you in that way, you will come to church here even though there may be churches a little bit closer to you in the suburbs or in an urban area. Every church has to be what God has called that church to be. Being a quarter of a mile from Route 21 means that we are very accessible to people from the outlying areas. And I, and I bet if we took a poll and put it on a map, we'd see that there are people from Probably, if you took one extreme area to the other, as much as almost an hour apart. Easily. If you go to the north and go to the south and go to the east and go to the west. Is that the right way to do church? No. It's the way God has formed this church. Now, I mention that because there is no right way to do these things. It is how the Spirit leads a group of people as a church body to function. Even we, as a church, have changed so much over the last 20 years. I say that because when we started, we were very much a young adult's church. Then we became more of a young couple's church. Then we obviously became more of a children's church and a family church. And now as I look around, we got a little bit of everything. Some of you guys are gray. Some of you guys with kids are going gray. We'll get there. So what we're finding out is that we have to be, what's the word, flexible. And if you're going to be used by God, remember we asked the question, what kind of people does God use? You've got to be flexible. What I have noticed, especially in our area, is the churches that have failed as churches over this last two years have been very inflexible. Actually, over the last few decades, I've noticed church culture that refuses to adapt and change to what God is calling them to be, oftentimes that ministry just dies. As the people who are comfortable with... without change, die off and go to be with the Lord, the ministry then no longer exists. And that's unfortunate. And we don't wish that for any church. But let me tell you, if you refuse to change, you will no longer be able to be used in the same capacity that God has used you in the past. So remain flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. You really do need to be able to be flexible in life. Now, there are some people here today who are a little bit more rigid and they create stress for themselves. We talked about this a few weeks ago, this idea of being change resistant. But let's move on from that and recognize that there is or are no special requirements for being used by God, no special requirements, but one requirement I can definitely tell you is essential and that is being flexible, being willing to adapt and to change, not to change the things that are immutable or unchangeable like our faith or the word of God. That would be a mistake. But to change our approach or the way we do things or the way we've done things. And so now here they go into this place very, very different than any other place they've been. And Paul and his team, they begin to proclaim the word of God in a way that they had never done before. Notice in verses 13 through 15. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there, and one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I don't think she was going to be dissuaded. I I think she had decided they were supposed to stay with her. Have you ever known someone with a militant form of hospitality? (laughs) You will eat. You will have seconds. Did you have dessert? Do you want another cup of coffee? You know, I, I actually appreciate that. You know, I do. I appreciate it. I know some of you guys think sometimes, oh, that's a little annoying, but you know what? When you have someone who loves you that much that they just want you to have a nice time and enjoy your meal, there's a a special kind of Italian love in that, I think. (laughs) I'm sure other cultures experience that. I just know my culture. But here's what we, we find out. Paul and his team, they proclaim the word of God to several women gathered outside the city gate. Now, when have they ever done that? When have they ever done that? This is new. This is different. Why? Why is it so different? Well, there apparently were no synagogues in the city of Philippi. Again, a Roman city, not surprising. It's a city with less than 10 adult Jewish males. Otherwise, they would have had a synagogue. In cities without a synagogue, one could expect to find a Jewish place of prayer at the river. This was just common practice. And this is why they went to the river, it tells us there, on the Sabbath, why? Hoping to find a place of prayer, a Jewish place of prayer. They find a few women, they speak to them, and as they're speaking to them, we find there's no Jewish men at all, and only a few women that had gathered for prayer. Not a huge presence of Judaism in this city. So their approach is going to have to be very different. In fact, how in the world are they going to make inroads Into this culture that they're unfamiliar with, with the exception of possibly Luke, how are they going to, if you will, infiltrate the society? How are they going to get in there and connect with people? How are they going to plant a church? You know, so many church planters go out and they read these manuals that look like phone books, and they decide when they go into a city, they pay a marketing firm, and they decide, well, this is the best way to reach this city and plant a church. I've seen these church planting guides. I've got to be careful how I say this. I could be blunt, or I could be diplomatic. What would you prefer? Blunt? They're really good for fire-starting in your chiminea or in your fire pit, or your fireplace. How's that for blunt? Because you go into a city, how could you possibly spec out a city, put it in a manual, have it all prepared, and you go in and say, well, the, the, the book says, the first thing we do is go to the local YMCA. YMCA. And I'm going to go there, and I'm going to connect with people. Oh, no, 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 in this city, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Starbucks. Every city has a Starbucks. I'm going to go to the Starbucks and I'm going to sit there and I'm going to hold court and build... Listen, all of those things can work. They do sometimes work. But when you put that in a manual and you tell a guy or a a team, this is how you plant the church, you know what you get? A church that was planted by you. And if it's successful, it's even more dangerous. So what you want to do is follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And what kind of people... Does God use what kind? The people that he's called. The people that he can get hold of who are flexible. So, we see that here, Paul, like Jesus, didn't hesitate to share the gospel with women, which was not necessarily a popular approach at that time. And then there's this woman, her name is Lydia, and she listens to Paul's message, and she opens her heart, but it was God that opened her heart, it says, to respond to the gospel. Why is that important? Because you can't open someone's heart to the gospel. No one opens someone else's heart to the gospel. I don't care how good you are at sharing it, or how strategic you may be in presenting it. Or how well-versed you are, a person that opens her heart to the gospel opens her heart because it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So you see, you rely on the Lord's direction. You also rely on the Lord's results, his power, his work. And when that happens, people say, then, then what happens is after the church is planted, then someone comes out and, and they want to know what you did so they can incorporate it into the appendix of that manual that you might want to burn. Well, we found another methodology which we're documenting so that you might be able to utilize this in your next church plant. 1995, act now. This idea of like commercializing the work of the Spirit disgusts me. Because I can tell you, if you planted a church on this street or around the corner or in the next town, it would be a completely different work of God, as it should be. Because God is the one that plants the church. He's also, as we see, the one that opens hearts. This woman was a dealer in purple cloth and a worshipper of God. She was a merchant of considerable wealth from the city of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira, interestingly enough, was a colony of Macedonian Greeks and it was in Proconsular Asia. So where did they come from? Proconsular Asia, modern-day Turkey. They just came from there. They just spent probably a year at least, they're in that area of the world, right? And now they come to a Roman city, very different, very foreign, and who's the first person they connect with? A person like the people they've been spending the last several months with. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Those that lived in Thyatira were known for their dyed cloth. They would, they would dye cloth, and they would sell purple cloth, and she had a business, and so she's in another part of the world doing business, but she's from this other part of the world. She was a Gentile convert to Judaism from modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, where they had just been. So you can start to see the pieces on the chessboard being moved. You see, as God begins to move in a work, you should be able to discern that God knows what he's doing. Amen? If you get out of the way. She and the members of her household were baptized as believers in Jesus Christ. She was the person that God chose to use in Philippi. She was the chosen vessel, the Lord's chosen vessel, to help plant the church in this city. Now, a master's household, and apparently she was the master or the mistress of her household, a master's household would follow his or her direction and authority on all matters, but that wouldn't have been forced baptism either. They would have still had to believe on their own and be baptized themselves. Now, an entire household, apparently a wealthy household, influential household, belongs to Jesus Christ. Because Paul and Silas and their team went outside the city and spoke to a woman, and that woman happened to be Lydia, and she happened to have her heart opened by God, and now there happens to be a church planted in her home. Now, was that difficult? Well, it was impossible but God does the impossible. See, I want you to get out of this thinking, well, that's too difficult. No, everything's difficult. No, actually in in spiritual matters, it's all really impossible. You can't do it. it. It can't be done. How do you plant the church? First thing I would say to a church planter is number one, it's impossible for you to plant the church. And they'd probably be like, well, how can you say that? Well, because I didn't plant the church. God did. And God does. So if you think you're so smart, and you're so experienced, and you're so educated that you can do what only the Holy Spirit can do, good luck. I've seen it. Decades go by, and then I get the phone call. Well, Pastor Tim, we just want to tell you we're closing our doors. We're closing our doors. Why are you closing the doors? Well, you know, it's been a couple of years, and And sometimes that happens because it is a work of God and something happens along the way, but most of the time you find out it really wasn't the Holy Spirit who was planting that church. And that's sad. And I don't don't like to hear those stories, but I'm all too familiar with them. So as I look at this, I realize, wow, what kind of person does God use? Lydia! Lydia is the kind of person that God uses. What can I say about her? Well, she sells purple cloth. Anybody here in retail? Anybody in sales? Anyone have a business? Anyone deal with the public? Anyone travel on business? That's Lydia. God uses all types of people, and Lydia was used by God. Well, Lydia invited Paul, as we've said, and his team to stay at her home. She insisted, actually, that they stay with her while they're there, And she was given a wonderful gift of hospitality, which is actually a spiritual gift. Okay, now we get to verse 16. Now, now here's where the trouble starts. Okay, so you can know two things. If you're flexible and led of the Holy Spirit, the very next thing that's going to happen is Satan will notice. See, most works and church plants don't get attacked because they're going to fall under their own weight anyway. But if a work of the Spirit begins to happen, oh, brothers and sisters, the very first thing you can expect is Satan's coming after you. It's going to happen. Don't freak out when it does. Because it will. And it, and it will continue to happen any time you're flexible, led of the Spirit, and God begins to use people, and he does a work, the very next thing that happens is Satan shows up. Okay, so here's what happens. Verse 16. Once, when they were going to the place of prayer... We were met, notice Luke is with them as he writes, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. While well, she kept us up for many days, finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. That's very peculiar because just on the face of it, the message sounds like, oh, wow, she's preaching for us. This is great. But, you know, the tone with which someone says something can exude sarcasm, mocking, and scoffing. And I would assume that an evil spirit would speak that way. That doesn't come out because we don't have that. We just have the text. But you've got to believe that this was about starting trouble. It's always about starting trouble. She was possessed by an evil spirit that enabled her to predict the future. I want to address this because some of you in the past have gone to fortune tellers. Maybe before you were a Christian. I hope certainly not since you've given your life to Christ. Fortune telling is an interesting thing, it's definitely a business, it's definitely a scam. However, people have testified, and I've never been to a fortune teller, but people have testified to me that they have an uncanny ability to predict the future. Now, why should that be a surprise to anyone? If she's possessed by an evil spirit, and she earns a great deal of money for her owners as a fortune teller, it means that what she's saying is actually happening. Because, I mean, let's face it, if a pizza place opened up and they had horrible pizza, how long would they last in this area, right? If a fortune teller opens up, and doesn't predict the future, they're not going to last very long. This woman was obviously possessed by a spirit that had some degree of influence. What does that mean? Well, fortune-telling and spiritism, as we know it, is strictly forbidden by God and his word. Make no mistake about it. If you are going to someone in the occult, a tarot card reader, a fortune-teller, anyone that, that does seances, Ouija boards, any of these occultic things... You, by the way, are in violation of God's word and in danger of hellfire. Like, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Stay away from it. I'm not going to talk about it. I don't even want to entice you to think about it. I'm just telling you that is not something you should be involved in. It's not something that you should even uh, entertain for a minute. But how did this work? Now, because I like to break things down, I I came up with this theory. This is just a theory. I think that the spirit probably fulfilled any prediction that was made in order to impress people. Think about it. It's an evil spirit, right? They have a degree of spiritual power that human beings don't have. So they predict the future not based on actually knowing the future, but by influencing people to fulfill the future that they've predicted. By that, this is what happens when you deal with evil spirits. So someone goes there and they get their palm read or whatever, they, and they tell them, oh, you know what? You're going to meet the love of your life next week. And this is why people go to these people. They really, at the end of the day, they want their needs met. So, okay, so you're going to meet the love of your life next week. So spirits can work behind the scenes. So they, they, they manufacture this situation where you bump into this person, and right away you're sort of primed for this, and, you know, it's like, E-harmony or something. Actually, evil harmony, if you will. <laughs> and, and now you have this, this connection. And right away, the person that, that received the predictions, like, the fortune teller told me the truth. I met the love of my life. But what they don't know is that the evil spirit or spirits were pushing the buttons to coordinate this thing behind the scenes to control your life, to get a hold of you, to get a beachhead in your life so that you are you trapped. That's how it works. I really do believe that's how that works. I don't think they actually can predict the future. I think it's a convenient way of making you believe they can, and deceiving you, and that's what was happening here. Well, she recognizes, because she has this evil spirit, who they are, and she harasses them. This is harassment, because Paul was troubled by it, right? I mean... These are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. If it was said with a sincere faith and belief, then Paul wouldn't have been troubled. He's troubled because of the way she's saying it, what she's doing in order to bring attention to them, and how she's creating trouble. It's clear she's harassing them as they're making their way out of the city gate to pray. They were just trying to gather together for prayer. And the Spirit knew who they were and and what they were preaching in Philippi. She was trying to mock and intimidate them, hoping to bring unfavorable attention to them. That's what's going on here. Now, I just want to point this out. Anytime you're on your way to prayer, you know the enemy will harass you. The enemy will harass you on your way to church, on your way to prayer, on your way to do ministry, on your way to do missions. That's when the enemy harasses you. And so is is it a surprise that that's what happened here? So she continued to harass them, notice, for many days. Paul is looking to keep a low profile. He's trying to make inroads into the culture without causing problems. Everywhere he goes, he tends to create problems by preaching the gospel. This is a a, a clean slate. This this is a fresh chance to kind of connect with this Roman Greek culture. and, And this woman with the spirit is making that impossible. So, I believe she was harassing them for many days until Paul cast the evil spirit out of her. Spirit was trying to provoke Paul. Have you ever been provoked? Let me tell you something. When you're being provoked, you can know that it's an evil spirit working as well. Now, sometimes people are just jerky and they like to provoke you. But a lot of times I've noticed when I'm doing the Lord's work and someone tries to provoke me, I think to myself, hmm, what's this all about? Why am I being provoked? Take notice of those times. What did Paul do? To his credit, he just sort of parried. He just sort of got out of the way and and, and said, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to pray and keep preaching the gospel. But finally, finally, after the Spirit had tried to provoke him into acting in the power of the Spirit, which would, of course, have caused problems, which it did. We'll see. After all of this, Paul finally became so troubled that he decided to cast the evil spirit out of her. He commanded the evil spirit in the power of Jesus' name to come out of this woman, and it did, and it immediately left her by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, the enemy will often harass us in an attempt to trouble us, provoke us, keep us from prayer, get us distracted, create problems, harass us. And so Paul and Silas and and their team is about to now reap the consequences of having acted in the Spirit, which was inevitable. Whenever you act in the Spirit, there will be conflict. And I wish more pastors and ministry leaders would understand this. If you're trying to avoid conflict as a pastor in the church, the only thing you can possibly do is be a coward, and then perhaps you won't have any conflict. You have to preach the gospel, and you have to accept that conflict is the inevitable result, spiritual conflict, the inevitable result of preaching the truth. Actually, conflict is pretty much the result of preaching the truth nowadays anyway, but spiritual truth will bring spiritual conflict. So here's what happens, verses 19 through 24. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in. The attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Wow. Maybe this is what Paul was trying to avoid and what the evil spirit was trying to bring about. You see, when you're provoked, that's kind of the the intention of spiritual wickedness, to provoke you to act in a way that brings punishment or brings persecution. Now, persecution is going to come. There's very little you can do about that. But here's what I do know. You you don't want to react in the flesh because you're only going to cause problems for yourself. I mean, one of the reasons, I know I, I study martial arts for this reason, but one of the reasons many people study martial arts is so that they will not respond inappropriately when they're being attacked. Are you with me? So you will not overreact so that you will extricate yourself from a situation as opposed to exacerbate the situation. That is really the hope of anyone that becomes a decent martial artist, I would say, is to never have to actually use it. Now, having said that, there are times where you just have to respond. And Paul just finally had to respond. He he had to cast out this devil, but look what happened as a result. You have to expect that. You do. You really do have to expect it. They're abused, literally abused, by the Roman authorities in Philippi. The owners of the slave world, they drag these men, Paul and Silas, before the city magistrates. Again, a Roman magistrate. They're angry with them. Why? They're, they cast out the devil, and now they can't make money. Greed will drive men and women to do the work of demons. Greed. You want to get to the bottom of why anything happens in this world today? Look to greed. Because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Greed is idolatry, the Bible tells us. So when you ask questions like, why is this happening in our government? Why is this happening in the world? Why is this happening in my community? It always seems to come back to greed. You can lose a lot more than a great deal of money by consulting evil spirits, by the way. So again, a warning not to even think about it. Well, these magistrates they exercise their authority. The owners show up. They slander Paul and Silas, saying they're creating trouble. They didn't create any trouble. They accuse them falsely of promoting customs that violated Roman law. That's not true either. But this is what happens when you're involved in a spiritual conflict. So the city magistrates, they order them to be stripped, beaten, and imprisoned. And it's awful. There's nothing about this that isn't absolutely horrific. Notice the crowd even joined into the attack. They're severely flogged. Now, whether they were flogged to the degree that Jesus was flogged or not, I don't know, but severely flogged sounds pretty severe to me. They were in prison, placed in the custody of the city jailer he was just doing his job, and then that jailer put them in the most secure cell and placed their feet in the stocks as if one of these things isn't bad enough, all of them together make you see just how much the enemy wants to torture you for your faith in Christ. Now, some of you have faced a few things in this world over the last year or two, some persecution, maybe the threat of losing your job. Believe me, none of us are, have gone through what these men went through. So here we go. You're like blunt, right? Quit your whining. Enough. The world isn't coming to an end if you have to get a new job, if you have to go to a different school, if you have to move out of your condo complex. Listen, brothers and sisters, put it up against the thing that the heroes of the faith had to suffer and quit your whining. I'm not being unsympathetic to the fact that we've had to suffer through some stuff lately, but when you put it in perspective, and you need to do that, you need to put this in perspective, All of you, I look around today, you look like you probably ate within the last 24 hours. You look like, you know, have nice warm clothes. You probably drove a decent car here. I'm not saying we haven't had to suffer. I'm not saying it hasn't been difficult. I'm not saying it hasn't been challenging or that we would like it to be different. I'm saying you don't need to whine about it because these men didn't whine about it at all. And they suffered a lot worse (laughs) a lot worse. Just put it in perspective. I'm not being insensitive. I'm just helping you to put it in perspective. Okay, so Paul and Silas then are freed from their chains, and not in the way that you would expect, not because they appealed to the Supreme Court. No, here's what happened. Look at verses 25 through 28. About midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were sitting around complaining about how awful their life was and writing petitions and calling their congressmen no. It actually doesn't say that. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose and the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. This is interesting. What's going on here? God's working. Not in a way you would expect either. Wow. Wow. They're freed from their chains. An earthquake. Oh, yeah, the earthquake just happened to happen at that exact moment. just happened to not hurt anybody, but just open up all the prison gates or doors, and their chains fell off. This was no ordinary earthquake, okay? This is Philippi, not California. This is a work of God's Holy Spirit. It's clear. We know this because they're praying and praising God at midnight after having been severely abused. That's faith. Can I hear an amen? That's faith. May we never be in that situation. Seriously, may we never be in that situation. But if we are, may we have that faith. The other prisoners, notice we're listening. And listen, the other people around you are listening. They're listening. Your kids are listening to how you respond. You know, you got to be careful. Your kids are listening. You're stuck in traffic. Oh, this is Satan. Satan put me in this traffic. And that was just me, you know, yesterday (laughs) or the day before. We have to be careful. People are listening to how we respond to persecution and trials. And it's really hard not to just say the things that we're thinking. But when you're praising God and singing hymns and people are listening, you pretty much got it covered. So let me see. What do you do when people are listening? Or maybe even when no one's listening, when things get tough? Well, let's go back and see what it says. It says they were praying. Or maybe you don't sing so well. Well, you can pray. And they were singing hymns to God. And when people hear that, that very well could change them. And as we'll see, it did. It does. So, the other prisoners are listening. The earthquake shakes the foundations. They escape. But then Paul stops the jailer from killing himself. Why, why would he have tried to kill himself? Well, he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, the reason for this, remember, this is a Roman jailer. This is a Roman culture. Roman jailers suffer the sentence of the prisoners if they escaped. So what if he had a few murderers there? What if he had a few rapists there? You, know, you don't know what the end result would have been. It would have been better, in his mind, for him to just kill himself than to suffer the result of allowing these prisoners to escape. Paul assured him, though, the city jailer, that all of the prisoners were still there. They're still within the jail. So he didn't need to kill himself. And you see the mercy of Paul because while the jailer had not beaten him, he had put him in stocks. He had put him in the inner cell with Silas. But you see Paul's heart in this because Paul's flexible. He's realizing maybe God wants to do something here. And so what do Paul and Silas do? Well, they do what they're called to do. They proclaim the word of God to the city jailer and his household. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, it says, The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he's not talking about spiritual salvation. He's, he's saying, what must I do not to suffer the wrath of the Roman government for allowing this to happen? Even though it wasn't his fault. Well, they replied, and of course they used this as an opportunity to preach the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his whole family, all his family, were baptized. Middle of the night baptism. Well, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? What had happened with Lydia now happened with a Roman jailer. Could it be that God was in this from the beginning? Could it be that even the suffering and the persecution were under God's control? I know you don't like to think about it. I don't either. That God would allow us to suffer so that others can come to know him. But history has taught us, and the Bible certainly preaches, that that is part of God's plan sometimes. So have you stopped to think that maybe what we're going through now might be part of God's plan as well? Oh my goodness, mind blower, right? Y- have you ever stopped to think that just maybe, rather than running around saying the sky is falling, and, and you know, people's fallback position is, well, oh, the Lord has to come back, things are so bad. If the Lord comes back, things will get better, I promise. But one thing I can tell you, he doesn't have to come back for things to get better, because God is in control. I'm sad that so many Christians are so willing to throw up their arms and say, the sky is falling. Have, where's your faith? What did Jesus say in the storm? Where's your faith? What happened? A little persecution? and Right away, it's the end of the world? The apocalypse? Seriously, the apocalypse? And maybe it is. Maybe the rapture's tomorrow. But the apocalypse because someone doesn't like you and made fun of you at the Costco? (laughs) I hear this stuff. The apocalypse because the election didn't go the way you wanted it to? The apocalypse? Seriously? Put things in perspective. God was working in the midst of persecution, these men were severely flogged and beaten. And God worked just like he worked out by the river. It's the same God. Amen? Please understand that. Please understand that. Please hold on to your faith. Don't throw it in the air just because things aren't going the way you think they should. Well, these men are really inspirations. I love it. When I read that, I realize how good God is Here's this man begging them, <laughs> begging them to tell him what he must do to be spared Roman judgment. They turn around, use it as an opportunity to preach to him what he needs to do to be spared God's judgment. And him and his whole household are saved. From God's word, he tells him that belief is the only condition for salvation. Belief. Belief. It was the word of the Lord that brought them to saving faith, because faith comes by hearing the word of God, just like Lydia and her household. This man was dramatically changed by their willingness to show him mercy, which he didn't deserve. That's by definition what mercy means. He washes their wounds. They're all baptized. He was the chosen vessel. He was one of the Lord's chosen vessels to help plant the church in Philippi. What kind of person does God use? A Philippian jailer who wasn't very nice to these men the night before. A man who was ready to kill himself. That's the man that God uses. And Of course, the household would follow his direction, but they had to make an individual decision for faith as well. So he brings them into his home. They're getting invited in a lot, right? Meal, home, hospitality. Well, that's how God works. A true inward faith must act outwardly, and this man proved it. Caring for the needy, being baptized, and showing hospitality, feeding the hungry. That was the result of this man's sincere faith. He had received, again, that spiritual gift of hospitality. And it says he was filled with joy. Amen? He was filled with joy because his family had found faith in Jesus Christ. He and his whole family. And that's why he's filled with joy, and, of course, if you have a true inward faith, you're going to be filled with joy. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? So that's good news, right? It's not all bad news. It sounded like it was, but it actually wasn't in the end, was it? So what do Paul and Silas do? Now, this is even more interesting to me. They exercise their rights as the citizens of Rome. They're both citizens. Now, that's problematic because I keep thinking to myself as I, as I realize that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Had they exercised their rights as citizens of Rome, they would have been spared. They would have been spared that severe flogging. What do I mean? Well, look, let's read verses 35 through 39. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. He's all happy. He thinks this is great. But Paul, ever the opportunist spiritually, But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly, without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I love Paul. it has got chutzpah, man. But it's not about his rights. It's about another opportunity. He sees another opportunity. City magistrates are like, all right, get those guys, you know, release them. Paul informed the officers that they had violated their rights as Roman citizens. Now, he he cited their offenses and demanded an audience with the city magistrates. Paul loves an audience. When he can share the gospel, he's going to take that opportunity. Now, listen, why were the magistrates in trouble? Because they had been unjustly, that is, Paul and Silas had been unjustly punished without a trial just to appease the angry crowd. To flog a Roman citizen was a crime punishable by death. Are you getting the severity of the situation these magistrates are in? Very Roman city. They follow Roman law. Now, it's interesting because the, the, the city jailer got into this situation and it softened his heart. Now the magistrates are in this situation. Perhaps God is softening their hearts. And maybe that's what's going on here. Now, Paul and Silas waited for the specific moment to invoke their rights as Roman citizens. They could have been spared this abuse easily had they informed them sooner of their status. But they didn't. Their suffering gave them an unprecedented opportunity to share the gospel. Is that your perspective on suffering? No. Don't even say it is. It's not mine either. If I can avoid suffering, I will avoid suffering. These guys embraced it knowing... Maybe this is how God wants us to plant the church in Philippi. They reached another household because they took a beating. That's what happened. Now, whether they knew that and whether that was part of their thinking, I don't know. But that's what happened. That's what happened. The magistrates, well, let's continue to read. They're not going to be very happy. In verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. That's putting it mildly. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison after requesting them to leave the city. Of course they did. This is a scandal. This could result in their deaths. But notice they came to appease them. We we don't know what happened in that conversation. Luke doesn't record it. I can tell you what Paul probably did. I'm sure he used that opportunity. I'm sure Paul and Silas used that opportunity to share the gospel. We don't know the results, but listen, it was yet another opportunity that Paul was given by the power of the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit. A private audience with the rulers of Philippi. Interesting. And the magistrates requested that they leave the city, obviously in order to avoid any more repercussions. They just want to get rid of them at this point politically. And then we read in verse 40, And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them, and then they left. A couple of days, maybe a few weeks, two households, who knows how many of the city magistrates they were able to reach. Would you call this successful church planting? Would you? Amen? I would. But if you had those scars across your back, you probably might feel a little differently. Yet Paul and Silas understood that the kind of person that God uses is anybody who will do what he's asked them to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to ask you to think about it. As we go through difficult times, can I ask you to at least consider that maybe suffering and sickness and difficulty have a part in God's plan? I don't think it's the end of God's plan. It wasn't the end of God's plan for their life. But persecution, sickness, difficulty, the political infringement of our rights, the things we're going through in our world today, is it at least possible that God is working through these things to reach our culture for him? You know, everyone was upset when the kids couldn't go back to school, so they had to sit there and and learn their lessons in the living room while the parents watched the garbage that was being taught their children in school. Eyes are open now. Parents are up in arms. Why? Because the veil has been taken off of the, I'm going to say garbage, that was being promoted and indoctrinated to our children. I see that as good. I see that as good. The church has become stronger because you're either a Christian or you're not, right? I mean, there's no posers anymore. They kind of left the church. Opposers are those that like to come because it's the convenient thing, the popular thing to do. But nowadays, you know, you're invoking the wrath of all social media by preaching Christ. Oh, well. I suggest to you, as we close with this last song, that we need to change our perspective on suffering and difficulty if we're going to share the gospel and reach our culture for Christ. What kind of people does God use? You, if you'll let him. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask for you to work mightily in our midst. Lord, we thank you that you'll use us, work through us, and be blessed as we preach the gospel. We look for that blessing to be shared with those that would respond, those that you will open the hearts of, like Lydia who opened her heart because you opened her heart. May you open the hearts of those around us as we go through difficult times. And as they listen to us praise you and pray through the difficulties that we face, may they respond like the Philippian jailer and the prisoners and those around us who can be given an opportunity to see our faith. Do this work we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.